Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Get ready for an extra special episode today. I'm talking to James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNU. If you were paying attention in previous episodes, and I certainly hope you were because there's going to be a quiz on it, you've heard James's name before. He's the guy who I thanked for doing a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff for the podcast a few episodes ago. After doing this for the past quarter century, it's time to hear his voice. Today we're going to find out what exactly an academic dean does all day. Because I, I don't know what he does all day. Then, just for the heck of it, James is going to interview me. This way, James gets some experience asking questions, because he's going to be a regular on this podcast going forward. In addition to fetching coffee and making me jealous of his bohemian San Francisco lifestyle, James is going to join me in interviewing these professional historians going forward, and generally make the podcast more interesting. So, here we go. What is your name, and what do you do? My name is James Fennessy, and I am the Associate Dean of Faculty for History with uh, Southern New Hampshire University's COSI. And what is your academic and professional background? Well, I started my academic background way long ago in 1994, enrolled at SUNY Plattsburgh, uh, which was a local university in the English department. So I started out as an English lit major. About two years into that program, I took an undergrad history course with Actually, I took two that term. I took one with uh, Dr. Vincent Carey and another with Dr. Douglas Scott, both of whom became lifelong friends and uh, I'm still very close with now. But what proceeded to follow was a spark and a love for history that resulted in me first declaring a minor in history and quickly adding it as a second major. So after that, because of the dual interest in literature and history, I wanted to do something a bit more interdisciplinary. So I said, what the heck, let's throw one more topic into there. So I actually applied to and was accepted to San Francisco State University's Cinema Studies program, which sounds like it's a direct path into making movies and making a lot of money, but totally. is not. <laughs> yeah, Cinema Studies is more along the lines of literary studies. So you're not actually enrolled in the MFA program, which which is where you would be making films and learning the different skills and, and approaches that would help you in the industry. It's more along the lines of watching and analyzing films, which I suppose can lead to great careers as archivist or film critic, but that wasn't the path that I chose. So I did complete my MA in cinema studies, worked in a library at San Francisco State for about four years after that, realized that I wasn't doing anything with my degree and that I really wasn't satisfied with where I had left my studies. So I applied to and was accepted to the MA program in history at University of Hawaii, Manoa, where I got to work with Herb Ziegler who, and Jerry Bentley, who actually were two prominent figures in world history. And we actually use the Bentley-Ziegler text in our world history courses here at SNHU, but had a really great experience there proceeded to go straight into a PhD program at the University of Liverpool in the Irish Studies Department. And unfortunately, wasn't the ideal time. Sometimes in a PhD program, you are placed with people that you work really well with, and sometimes not. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll be very diplomatic about the conversation. Okay. It was not 
the best fit and the pound being two to one to the dollar at the time, I couldn't justify basically doubling what I was spending for trying to accomplish one of my life goals of achieving a PhD when I wasn't even really sure if I wanted to go into academia with that anyway. It was just a personal goal. So unfortunately, I had to cut my losses. It was definitely um, an amazing and enlightening experience. Uh, The only thing that didn't come out of it was a PhD. So (laughs) there you go. The the actual degree is overrated. Yeah. So while you're, you're so while you're gallivanting around the world to San Francisco and then to Hawaii and then to Ireland, I mean, I kind of get the sense that you're just more of a you're just on vacation more than anything. But still, whatever. While you're doing all these global <laughs> journeys, what are the uh, research interests that are fueling your pursuit of history and, and all these various other degrees? Well, one of the connections was always Irish history. <laughs> one of the Interesting but dismissive comments that I had ever received about one of my proposed projects was when I had applied to the British Studies Department at the um, at Berkeley. Uh, so the the head of the department basically told me that Irish historians and people working on Irish topics were notorious for being isolated and not really looking at the big picture. So he respectfully declined to. <laughs> to continue to talk to me about acceptance huh. to the program, which was which was interesting because every Irish historian that I went on to work with and speak to after that said, I have no idea where that stereotype comes from because it's absolutely not true. But connecting back to that and why I might be applying to a British studies program for all of those hardcore Irish nationalists out there would, is because my project was actually focused on Northern Ireland. So when I transitioned from undergrad to my cinema studies degree, I was actually really interested in how Irish Republicans were depicted in mainstream Hollywood films. So looking at, um, you know, all of those classic Harrison Ford movies, um, and then you throw Brad Pitt in there with The Devil's Own, and then even considering independent films in order to draw a comparison. So The Crying Game. I so, like the and, idea you know, of lumping Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford movies into classics. Awesome. They are classics. Come on. Yes. <laughs> So I was I was looking at the depiction of Irish Irish nationalists, the IRA, Irish terrorists, however, you know, whatever term you you would use to describe them. And developed a pretty interesting project that actually led to a couple of presentations which at conferences which interestingly enough brought me to Hawaii. There is an interdisciplinary conference there every January that I submitted papers to and was accepted to present. So I went to and presented in Hawaii three years in a row, which is how I got to know the island itself. And then I had a connection at the University of Hawaii through one of my other undergrad professors. So um, I applied to the program in history because at that point I was just working in the library at San Francisco State, realized that this was not fulfilling my academic curiosity or really helping to further what I would ideally like as a job or a career. So um, I applied and was accepted to the University of Hawaii Manoa, which was fantastic. So I downsized everything in my life, put everything that I didn't want to throw away or give away into a storage unit and picked up and moved over to Hawaii on my own. So met some really great people there. And that's where I developed the project that I went on to try to develop as a PhD, which is focused on this student group in Northern Ireland. They started out at, or they formed at 
Queen's University in Belfast. They're called People's Democracy. I was really looking at the various figures within People's Democracy, trying to figure out how they, not initially, but part of my PhD would have been, placing them within the larger conversation of student activists and protests that were going on in the late 60s. And specifically what my research focused on and what I completed for my master's thesis was a background on people's democracy, looking at how the organization was run and who was involved, and then specifically focusing on this civil rights march that they organized from Belfast to Derry at the very start of 1969 that resulted in clashes along the way between various communities. And once they reached Derry, massive fighting and the first incarnation of a free Derry that we see in Northern Ireland. So that was the gist of my project. Hopefully I didn't go too much into detail. We're actually coming up on, um, well, pretty soon on the 50th anniversary of the formation of People's Democracy and also of that that march. So I've been in contact with um, at least one person and trying to figure out what the potential is there, who's working on projects and what I might be able to um, to bring back from the dead, <laughs> so to speak, and maybe maybe have my voice heard within this larger narrative around the um, around people's democracy, the Irish uh, Northern Irish civil rights movement, and specifically these marches that were happening. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that you are the associate dean of faculty for the history department at SNHU. So what exactly is that, and how do you end up in that position? Luck? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, we'll go with that. So I, yeah, we can go with that. So once I left the PhD program, I actually went back to the U.S., and my timing was impeccable because I moved back to the States during the middle of one of the worst recessions that we've had in modern history. So this resulted in me moving back to San Francisco, trying to get reestablished in the area, having to move back to New York in order to stay with some family and save up money for a while, and then finally pulling together some online teaching gigs, other opportunities, and moving back to San Francisco to get reset and and just re-entrenched with, within what I consider home. I've lived in San Francisco since 2000, so it's much more home than, than any other place that I've lived in or traveled to. So at that point, I was working as an adjunct for a handful of universities, accepting whatever assignments that they could give me, trying my best to go above and beyond each time because, as you probably know and a lot of uh, our adjunct faculty know, you need to maintain those those strong approaches and be connected to the universities if if you want to continue to get assignments just because of the way that the whole adjunct um, experience works these days. One of those universities was Southern New Hampshire University. I had the good luck of having a really great assistant dean at the time, Tom Leary, who not only took the time to speak with me provide me with opportunities to come in and work as a SME, which is a subject matter expert when we were revising a course, but also gave me the opportunity to be a team lead at Southern New Hampshire University. So I got a chance to work with some really amazing other team leads in, you know, in history, Judy Luckett, Michael Bell. God, I can't even remember who was a team lead at the time. This was years ago. And then when Tom Leary left to pursue another direction in his career, we had a vacancy for a little while. And the associate dean in the department was running the meetings and doing what he could, but he was also over the whole department, not just over history. So I also worked very closely with our academic specialist at the time. It Things just kind of progressed. So they opened up the job. Susan, who was the academic specialist at the time, actually asked me if I wanted to apply. I said, does this require me to move to New Hampshire? She said, yes. I said, no. <laughs> she, she asked me to, to reconsider multiple times over the next two to three months. 
it's kind of a ridiculous story because you would think that somebody who's just stringing together an existence teaching adjunct would jump at the opportunity to move from just this part not even part-time position with various universities to this full-time position helping to create, organize, and run a department. And my focus at the time was obviously I just made it back home. I knew what it was like to live in the Northeast. I had no desire to move away from my entire support base and from the place that I considered home once again after just getting back. But I was actually traveling at the time, and I distinctly remember I was sitting in a friend's flat in Copenhagen and was exchanging texts with Susan, with Tom, and with some other people who were associated with the department. And basically... What they said was, it doesn't hurt to apply. You don't have to take it if you don't want it, but please just put in your application and let's see where it goes. Which I suppose, thinking back, makes me sound extremely ungrateful leading up to that point. <laughs> you know, the fact that these people were asking me to apply, people that I've worked with for a while and really respected. So I said, you we, know what? We all appreciate you deigning to <laughs> join the that's, department. <laughs> that's not even the way I mean it to come across at all, but it's one of those things where. You know, at that point, location was key to me, and the fact that I I would be picking up and moving to a new location where I didn't have, really didn't know anybody except for one or two people, but relocating once again from the friendships, the support base that I'd had had it established for 15 years. You know, and it was just I was getting to the point where I was sick of jumping around, moving to new locations. So all of that played into. <laughs> the um, reasons why I didn't want to apply. And then as I was sitting there, I was thinking to myself, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Just apply. Like, this is an amazing opportunity. People are, you know, suggesting that you put in an application. Even if you don't get it, it's worth going through the experience and the exercise. So I did and was lucky enough to be offered the position. So from there, it all kind of progressed. Uh, I quickly went to New Hampshire for training Came back to San Francisco, packed up a van, 10 days on the road by myself, driving across country, got to New Hampshire the following Monday. I was in there for training, and I suppose the rest is history. But um bum Now, yeah. <laughs> you, you still haven't answered the question, though. What exactly oh, is yeah. an associate dean of faculty for history? <laughs> exactly. I'm really great at sidestepping that. Um, Good job. So <laughs> the associate dean of faculty position at Southern New Hampshire University actually is – is an interesting position when you consider the traditional role of a dean at a regular university. So the best way to describe the associate dean of faculty position at Southern New Hampshire University is that it's a cross between a department chair and a manager. So I do have input into um, program-specific elements. So, uh, you know, the associate dean of programs will come to me every now and then if she has questions specific to history any suggestions for SMEs, and I can bring my feedback as well from what I see in the courses, what I think is working from a discipline-specific outlook. And we work dynamically that way. Also work very closely with um, people like you <laughs> to kind of set the, um, set the tone for the department and try to figure out the ideal program and how we can continue to, to develop a really strong program and gain an even an even stronger online presence so that we become even better in the courses and the program that we offer our students. Also, my primary goal or primary role is 
faculty oversight. So that's where the management aspect comes in, which is kind of a bit different than a traditional university because the department chair doesn't really have oversight and hiring and firing power when it comes to, to faculty. But that's where the managerial aspects of my job come in. So I work very closely with faculty. I'm here to develop faculty community, provide all the resources that I can, create trainings for individual courses, have conversations with faculty members if they need assistance. It's rare, but every now and then have conversations with faculty members who might not be giving it their all or might really be struggling and try to create plans in order to to get to the point where, where we all need to be in the department. And then sometimes that doesn't work out and either the faculty member decides that it's not a good fit or we have to have a more difficult conversation. Luckily, those conversations do not happen all that often. But I think that's probably a pretty big overview of what I do. So looking into the courses, see what's running correctly or working, see what might not be working, see what support I can provide for students. But really, I'm there to work directly with faculty and to develop a strong community within the department. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing things get even better as time goes on. So now for the special part of the episode that everybody's been waiting for. What would you like to know about me? So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Rob Denning, and I am the lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. What's your academic and professional background? Uh, My academic background is long and varied. Uh, I started out way back when I first graduated high school. I thought I was going to be a psychology major. That lasted for two classes, and then I uh, jumped ship. Went over to become a math major. Thought that was going to be my future, was doing quadratic equations and calculus and all of that. As an undergrad in college, I had two moments that convinced me that history might be a better way to go. First moment was when I took a history of mathematics class. And in that class, I realized that I liked the history part of it better than the math part of it. And so I just started taking history classes just for fun. And then in one of those history classes, uh, which was kind of became the second moment, that convinced me that history might be a good way to go. I had one of those old school professors named Frank Kofsky who had written his lecture like 30 years before and had no PowerPoints. He just had his lecture notes typed out on, you know, yellowing pieces of paper up there at the front of the room. So he would walk into the classroom, slap his notes down on the podium. But since he had given this lecture for 30 years, he didn't actually have to look at his notes. And so (laughs) instead he would just pick, you know, a spot on the back wall and just talk at that spot for, you know, 45 minutes straight while the rest of us, where all the students were frantically trying to write down notes because the guy wouldn't stop for anything. And that guy uh, was one of those kind of stereotypical, terrifying instructors. He was also a flaming liberal uh, who just regaled against the evils of conservatism. And he would talk about how uh, history is ever, is, is a march towards progress and that you know, eventually we will overcome the evils of conservatism and all of that. So we're all frankly trying to take that down too. And and then at one point we had to give class presentations and we did these group presentations. I had to do, we had where we had to present information on a book. And so me and this, uh, uh, a woman that was in the class were paired up to present this book. It was called America in 1857 by Kenneth Stamp. It's a great book. I actually still have it on my bookshelf 20 years later. Uh, So we had to talk about things like Bleeding Kansas and the Dred Scott decision and basically the prelude to the Civil War. And when we got up to give the presentation, I went first and I talked about Bleeding Kansas and all of that. And then my partner uh, just completely, she said like three words and then went and sat down. 
and just she was supposed to be talking about the Dred Scott decision. She was supposed to talk about a lot of these specific events related to the Civil War. And she just walked away. <laughs> and so the professor looked at me, who was this, again, the fiery liberal professor looked at me and said, aren't you guys going to finish the book? And so I just kind of winged it and finished the book. And he afterwards, one of those, you know, one of those things that sticks with you forever. And he said, that was pretty good. <laughs> and then at that wow. point, I thought, huh, well, that, that guy thought it was pretty good. And so that combined with my kind of already growing interest in history and also the fact that I really wasn't very good at advanced mathematics. I got to a, a point where I got to a introduction to formal mathematics class and just sucked at it. And the advisor that I had for the math department called me in and said, you know, you might want to think about another major. And so I found another major and went with history. And then got, so I got my bachelor's in history from California State University, Sacramento. And then like a lot of academics, once I graduated, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with myself, and so I decided to just, you know, keep going to college. And so I signed up for the master's degree program there at uh, Sac State, got my master's degree, I worked with Dr. Joe Pitty. A friend of mine at Sac State went on to become a PhD. I had never actually contemplated going on to a PhD program. It just never occurred to me. But a friend of mine from Sac State named Tim Wright did, and he wrote you know, he sent me an email one day saying, hey, this, this PhD thing's pretty cool. You might want to think about it. And so after I graduated from my the master's degree, I you know just kind of on a whim, I started sending out applications and a couple of places uh, wrote back with acceptance letters. And so I picked the one that seemed to be the best deal. And I went to Ohio State to uh, get my PhD, graduated from there in 2011, and you know, been teaching ever since. That's fantastic. What a trajectory from math to history. Yeah, it's, well, I, you know, I, I could try to make up some sort of a grand connection between the two or something, but no, it's just I, I liked math until I got to the advanced math part, and then everything kind of fell apart, and <laughs> I went yeah. looking for something else. Both have numbers, so yeah. there's the yeah. there's the big connection. There you go. Yeah, I was never a, a math person. I don't know if you remember that um, that old Saturday Night Live skit with Martin Short. It's the synchronized, is it synchronized swimming? And where he's like, I was never that strong of a swimmer and that's whenever i think of not being strong at something that's what pops into my mind <laughs> that happens to me a lot anyway <laughs> well no that's that's great luckily lucky for us that math did not capture your imagination or mine or i wasn't good enough to move past a certain level and you decided to go to history so we both ended up here together yeah connecting to that now that you are in this position how would you describe a typical day in your current position here at SNHU? Well, this position of faculty lead is kind of ambiguous. It's, I mean, it's obviously it's got faculty in there. So I do teach. I teach one class per term. Generally, I teach classes in the graduate program at SNHU. Uh, this term, I'm teaching one of the capstone courses. Usually, I flip back and forth between the historiography course and the capstone course. So I, I teach one class each term. And then the rest of my time is spent doing a lot of behind-the-scenes type stuff. Uh, I do a lot of the program management type duties. So I help out with course developments. I help out with course revisions. If there are problems with textbooks, sometimes they'll call me in to find the new textbook to replace the old one. There's a lot of kind of ad hoc project-to-project -project type work that is all done with the goal of improving a, a particular course or improving the overall history program, either undergrad or graduate 
in general. And then I do also have some longer-term projects uh, like this podcast series, and there's some some oversight of courses that, I mean, the, the amount of oversight that I do on, on courses at instructors is going to vary over time, but I'm not a supervisor of faculty, but I do work with faculty often because I enlist their help if we're trying to solve a problem for a course, then I obviously I'll reach out to the instructors of that course. I reach out to instructors for this podcast series. So I work closely, fairly closely with instructors. It's not in a supervisory role. It's more in a kind of a mentor role or a team lead type role where if an instructor has a question about, I don't know, about a course or about the way the program works or something like that, I can help out with that stuff. I don't handle things like scheduling or onboarding, offboarding, that kind of stuff is, well, that's your job. Uh, so my role with instructors is more of a lead type role. So my job changes. It's, it's, I'm doing different things all the time, which makes it interesting. It's not the same thing day after day after day, thankfully. Got it. At least it keeps it um, interesting, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yep. So as part of these these duties as a faculty lead, um, especially when you're connected to program, you probably have to be pretty aware of what's going on in the field of history. So how how do you stay current in the field, and do you have any projects that you're working on right now? Well, yes, I have to stay current in the field. I actually have to stay current in more than one field, because part of it is staying current in, you know, history. Uh, so I'm a member of the American Historical Association, the Organization of American Historians, and so I read their publications, they put out their quarterly journals, but they also put out monthly magazines where they talk about kind of smaller scale projects and what's the state of the field and all of that. So I stay up with that. And then, of course, I also have individual various research interests that I focus on that I try to stay up with. So as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, my MA thesis and my dissertation were on California politics and civil rights and all that. And so I try to stay current on those fields, find new books on those when they come out. Part of it is just keeping up with the literature. Part of it is just keeping up with the information that is put out by those major historical associations. But then I also, in this other role of course design and all of that, I also have to keep up with the field of teaching. How do you, what are effective ways to teach history courses? How do students learn history? And that's a bit more I mean, that's, that's newer to me. I mean, that, that going through grad school, you get hounded into you that, you you know, you keep up with your field and all of that. But the pedagogy part of it is new. The pedagogy is different. It's a, a whole different way of looking at learning. When we're going through grad school, usually we get paired up with a senior instructor and we tend to emulate whatever that senior instructor did without really much thought on how students learn, what are the effective ways of teaching. Usually it's just, you know, this instructor did it this way, so I'm just going to copy that guy because I have nothing else to go on. Whereas there has been a whole lot of learning science done on how students learn and all that. And so a big part of my job has been trying to become familiar with that field of, of literature also. And so SNHU, and we've got a lot of people here that handle learning science as kind of their primary job. And so talking to them, I've gotten suggestions for books to read and articles to read that come through either listservs at SNHU or through contacts with various people that are involved with learning science. And so I spend a lot of time trying to stay up to date on changes in learning science so that we can apply those to our courses when we revise them periodically. And there's, you know, sometimes successes, sometimes failures, but that's 
that's the game, I guess. And so it, it's a lot of reading. Don't have necessarily have a whole lot of time during the day to do reading, so sometimes it's more skimming than reading. But you know, I try to get the gist of it, and then that way I can apply both the content and the pedagogy to these courses as we are developing them or revising them. That's fantastic. It's good that you're keeping abreast of what's happening out there because there are some programs that are doing some amazing things. I actually just looked at an article yesterday from Oregon State where they're previewing their um, their online courses, and there's a, a lot of gamification, a lot of really interactive courses that they're offering across the board, whether that's science or history. So there are some really interesting things going on in, in education, especially online in the courses, the types of courses that are being offered and really breaking away from these traditional-looking Blackboard-style courses. So bring some great stuff to the department, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, we are trying to, <laughs> as we move forward, we're going to be changing from Blackboard to the new LMS and all that. So we are going to see a whole lot of dramatic changes in the way our courses look. But we're also going to hopefully in the next year or two go through and do a major overhaul of the entire history program, the undergrad and graduate programs. Because we've, we've identified over the years some gaps. There are some, you know, a lot of regions that don't get covered in our programs or time periods or some things that are covered, but we just don't like the way they're covered. So we're going to try to do a major overhaul in the next year or so of both the undergrad and graduate programs. And when we do that, we're going to really push for incorporating these learning science principles into that so that we can make these things work better for students. As it is now, some of our courses apply to some students, but not all students. We want to figure out a way to try to make them more inclusive, to bring more people in, make the courses a bit more dynamic, make them more interesting, which we're hoping we'll be able to do with the new LMS system. Yeah, I'm hoping for big things. That system is definitely more dynamic looking. It's Aesthetically, it's just more visually pleasing. So, you know, we'll have the migration that's happening right now and then the opportunity to really explore those those tools in that space and figure out how to create some visually stunning and really interactive and effective courses across the board is you know even in history it's not only going to be for for stem and things like that so yeah but i'm not interested in them i like history <laughs> <laughs> so just to wrap up a bit uh what history related recommendation do you have for us this week i actually have just begun to get back into reading literature and away from the more stuffy leadership emotional intelligence type books that we've been we've been reading as part of a series so the latest book that i picked up is called the ballad of black tom by victor laval it is a novel but it is a historical novel set in harlem in the 1920s and i don't want to give too much away but the head character or the main character charles or tom his middle name is thomas so they call him tom is kind of this this shyster figure so he has this <laughs> i don't know he has a, a magic i don't know how to <laughs> describe it maybe we should start over with this part <laughs> Okay, because the larger I don't want to give a, I don't want to give away anything about the book itself, but it is set in a very specific period in history that that takes into account all of the the racial relations in the 1920s, the economic situation, also music and the various experiences in New York City of immigrant prop populations and and those living in Harlem versus those living in Queens. So it's a it's a really interesting look at the various groups in New York at this time in American history. And there are surreal elements as well as magical elements in there too. Having a background knowledge of, 
of the history does add more to that book, and it really does connect with a lot of the themes from the 1920s in America. Sounds good. I'm going to toss out a recommendation also. By the time this episode airs, this will be old news, but as we record this in late September, I'm watching the new Ken Burns and Lynn Novick documentary series on the Vietnam War on PBS. And as you can predict from those two, this series is absolutely amazing. From what I understood, it took 10 years to make this because it required special clearances from the Vietnamese government for location shots and interviews. This series is 18 hours long, I believe, over 12 episodes. The series is amazing, not really because it provides a new interpretation of the French and American wars in Vietnam, but mainly just because of the footage and the visuals. The new episode includes photographs and film footage from remote Viet Minh camps before and during the French conflict, and uh, later episodes include amazing battlefield footage, but also photos and film from places like Hanoi and Saigon. Uh, they're interviewing uh, American combat vets, but they also interview men from all of the various Vietnamese factions, uh, such as the North Vietnamese Army, the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese Army, uh, the National Liberation Front, a.k.a. the Viet Cong. As I said, the interpretation is not radically new. The overall storyline is that America got involved in Vietnam through arrogance, hubris, ignorance, and that the U.S. picked the wrong side in a civil war, basically. The war was unwinnable for the Americans all along, and instead of a victory, we instead saw you know, an, an obscene loss of blood and treasure on both sides. Now, like all of Ken Burns' documentaries, like the Civil War and uh, Baseball, the National Parks and all that, there are some flaws that'll get picked apart by professional historians. Of the episodes that I've seen, for example, women are non-existent, except for one interviewee who talked about her family's experiences in uh, Saigon. Historians will probably quibble over how Burns and Novick prioritize some events over others, but overall, it's an amazing documentary, and I hope people will check it out. That's fantastic. You can't go wrong with a Ken Burns documentary. That's right. Well, I think that about does it, so thank you for joining me today. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email, snhuhistory at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and everybody else involved with this podcast, I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening. Then I guess we're going, well, we can just roll into this then. You want people to know that I'm not your boss, and you're lucky <laughs> that I'm not your boss. <laughs> this is, that's why I can say snarky things to you is because you're not my boss. All right. Any uh, any any last words? <laughs> any final words? No. Good luck right. and Godspeed. Yeah. Good luck and Godspeed. Wait, was it? Good luck. We're all counting on you. We're all counting on you. Over and is over the, and over again. Is that what Leslie Nielsen says in Airplane? Mm-hmm. Good luck. Or we're all counting on you, or something along those lines. Yeah. I can't remember if he starts with good luck, but he definitely says we're all counting on you. We're all counting on you. That's right. Over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Another classic. Now I gotta watch the SNLs and Airplane. It's gonna be a long time. I know, time. right? At least Airplane One. Mm-hmm. Airplane Two. Um, I, I love that one. I think that was the one I ended up watching more when I was a kid. And there was a there was like a, a an edit of it that they used to broadcast on TV that had different scenes than the the you know the VHS and the DVD releases. And so it was all it was um, VHS. Yeah, I actually had that thing on VHS at some point. <laughs> and there were scenes that were missing from the VHS that were on the broadcast one. So I, was, I would always get confused. 
as I watched either one or the other because for some reason it used to be on broadcast TV all the time. But they um, they always had there there was like these two different scenes that would appear in one and not the other, and I was always so confused by that. 